Well, good morning, everyone uh, there at home. I'll tell you what, it doesn't get any more normal to be doing this. Room is empty except for Molly and Luke Severance there, Michael's here, and that's it. It is odd. This is our fourth week doing it. It's still odd. Um, But you know what? If there's anything we need during this time, it is the Word of God. And so we're going to continue trying our best to, to feed on the Word of God together and learn what God has for us. And I'm continually amazed at the relevance that Scripture has for us during these times. Uh, you've probably heard the saying, uh, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. And of course, what's meant by that is that when there's a trial or tragedy, when there's fear, everyone reaches for something divine to save them. I I even remember in Jonah, when the storm is raging on the ship, all the pagans called out to their gods. You know, everybody in the time of the storm calls out to something that they think will offer them some sort of rescue, some sort of salvation, some sort of help. Uh, And even, as the saying goes, even atheists in those times of tragedy are reaching for something to help them I've even known of many people, maybe this is you, who who came to Jesus in a time of tragedy, right? You had a physical disease. Maybe it was a family tragedy, and you looked to Jesus for help in that time, and you got more than you bargained for. You got help, but you got salvation. Uh, Some people come to Jesus thinking he can fix this problem that I see, and Jesus ends up doing something greater, uh, better, and more amazing than even what we thought he would do when we came to him. Some of you got saved that way. I've heard the stories. Jesus became something to you greater than you ever knew him to be because the crisis was something that drew you to him. The suffering drew you to him And you came to him to have your crisis fixed, but Jesus fixed you instead. I want to tell the story from Scripture. It's not something I've made up. It's something that was recorded in Scripture, true story about Jesus and about some people who came to Jesus because of uh, something that was going on in their life that was difficult, a tragedy, a crisis, a fleeing from sickness. These guys came to Jesus to find in Jesus a solution to their physical problem. And we're going to see that they got more than they bargained for when they came to Jesus. Jesus did something greater in their lives than they even anticipated. And as they came to Jesus, listen, I am praying that's happening today. I think that this is happening today. And I want you to join in praying with me that people in their fear of what's going on in the world, they're coming to Jesus and they're wondering, maybe he can do something for me at this point. Maybe he can keep me safe. Maybe he can make me well. Maybe he can save my parents. Maybe he can save my grandparents. And we come to Jesus asking for something uh, really specific, and he gives us so much more. He actually fixes us. And maybe if you're not even a Christian, but you're curious about Jesus these days because of all the crazy things that are happening in our world, I I hope this message will show you uh, something that Jesus does with people who come to him to try to fix their sickness. I hope it shows you something that Jesus can give you, something greater than health and healing. 
We're going to look at Mark chapter 2. So if you're at home, you're listening, Mark chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 to 12. I'm going to read it and kind of comment as we go so you can kind of understand it. And then we're going to try to dig into it and, and draw out some answers to the, some very important questions that we find here in the text. Uh, here it is. Let's read it. And I'm going to explain as we go. Verse 1, chapter 2. It says this, And when he, talking about Jesus, of course, returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Okay, so we're pausing, and I'm going to explain as we go. Uh, Jesus comes back after a healing tour. If you're in chapter 2, you could look back to chapter 1, and you would see in verse 39, he's going throughout all of Galilee. He's preaching, and he's casting out demons. And so, after some time doing that, he's now on his way back to Capernaum. That's kind of home base. Uh, that's where... Simon and Andrew lived, and so that's where he's kind of set up his headquarters. He's coming back home. Verse 2 says, And he were gathered, many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. All through chapter 1, wherever Jesus went, people were clamoring to get his attention because they wanted healing. They brought their sick. They brought their unclean. A leper, even, in chapter 1, verses 40 to 44, uh, a leper comes to him, and he wants healing. Everyone is crowding at Jesus because he can heal. And they've heard about him, and they want to be healed. And so at the door, it says this whole room, this whole house is filled. filled. You can't even get in. There's not any more space. And it says, verse 2, they've gathered together. There's no more room, not even at the door. And he, that's Jesus, was preaching the word to them. If you remember from last week, that was Jesus' priority all along, is to preach to people the truth. Uh, the, the truth about how man can be reconciled to God. How people can be made right with God. He's preaching about their need of forgiveness of their sins. And everyone's crowding around. It's so packed. Verse 3, And they came, bringing to him paralytic, carried by four men. Okay, so here's four guys, actually five guys, four of them are carrying a man who's paralyzed. He can't walk, he can't move himself, and so his four friends are carrying him by each corner, and they're trying to get into Jesus because they want to be healed. They want their friend, the paralytic, to be healed. But it says in verse 4, they could not get near him because the crowd, they removed the roof above him. You see that? When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. The roofs in those days were made from mud and tile, and it was kind of easier than a roof in our day to break through. And so Jesus was preaching, and suddenly you would have maybe seen some dirt falling. You would have heard some pounding and and, and I wonder if people are all wondering what's going on on the roof. And suddenly it opens up and sunlight shines through, and there are four men with their friend, and they, it says, they made an opening, and they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So what kind of engineering they did here is pretty, pretty neat. Whatever they're doing, they're able to lower this guy down right there next to Jesus. It says they let down the, the bed on which the paralytic lay. Verse 5 
And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) Jesus doesn't heal the guy. The guy's still sitting there paralyzed. But he says, your sins are forgiven. I wonder about the silence in the room as everyone says, what just happened? What just happened? And I wonder if some of them were even wondering, why aren't you going to heal him? You look at what happens in verse 6. It says some of the scribes were sitting there. Scribes were those who were trained in the the law, Old Testament law. To become a scribe, you had to go through through rigorous training, tests uh, to be uh, called a scribe. It was a formal position. And so they're wondering, what is this guy saying? He's just forgiving sins? Verse 7 says, why does this man speak like that? This is akin to saying, who do you think this guy is? Who does he think he is? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone, he says, they say. You know, the right, they knew the Old Testament. The Old Testament was very clear that only God could forgive sins. And so they're saying this, and they're going, only God can do this. But here's a guy saying that he is forgiving this guy's sins. And so they're flustered, they're accusing, they're all out of sorts. And verse 8 says, and immediately Jesus perceiving the spirits, in, in his spirit, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, so Jesus picks up on what they're thinking, and he now responds to their own questioning with his question, and he says this, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? He gives them a scenario, which is easier to say? Now, commentators are all over the place on this one. Which is easier to say? What does he mean by that? You're, to say your sins are forgiven or to say take up your bed and walk? I think it's kind of simple. Uh, this is what he means. It's really easy to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because no one could verify whether it was true or not in the room. If he were to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, and he didn't get up and walk, everyone could verify if he's telling the truth or not. It's really easy for anyone to say your sins are forgiven. And Jesus could have just said that, and that would have been that. And no one would have known if it was legitimate or not. But Jesus, he declares the sins are forgiven. And then, look at what happens in verse 10. He goes, I know that you don't believe that I can just stand here and forgive sins. But I want to prove it to you. Verse 10 goes like this, but that you may know, this is the central verse of this section, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he says he turns to the paralytic. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. (laughs) And then in verse 12, and he rose. And immediately he picked up his bed and he went out before them all so that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. It's like they doubted that, God, that Jesus could forgive sins. That's what's happening here. And Jesus says, I'm going to prove it to you because I'm going to declare that I've forgiven his sins, but I'm going to do something even beyond that. I'm going to heal him and I'm going to heal him so that you know that I, the Son of Man, have authority to forgive sins. My healing of his paralysis is going to prove that I can forgive him. Here's the main point of this text. It's really clear. It's obvious. It's right there in the middle. It's verse 10. This text is in Mark so that you 
And I and everyone who reads this gospel of Mark will know that Jesus Christ has authority to forgive sins. This is the point. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Now to make this hit home, to understand this, I think we need to answer three questions. Uh, first, we've got to answer what are sins. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what sins are. Second, we need to answer this question, what does it mean to forgive sins? What's forgiveness? And then third, I want to answer this question, and this is where it becomes pretty personal. How can you be forgiven? How can you be forgiven? So those are the three questions. You, you've got the point of the text already. Now let's answer these questions, and I'm going to tell you why these uh, th this passage is so powerful when you understand the answers to those three questions. What are sins? What does it mean to forgive sins? And how can you be forgiven of your sins? Let's start with this uh, question. What are sins? What are sins? Most people have the word sin in their vocabulary. Christians and non-Christians, uh, everywhere you go in the world, there will be some idea of sin. If you talk about the modern usage of sin, uh, sin is equivalent to a mistake, to a faux pas. In modern usage, sins are you know, the way we upset one another. Sins are mostly social. Uh, they are mostly related to people around us. But I want to draw out some truths about sin that the Bible teaches us. What does the Bible say about sin? Is sin just an equivalent to a mistake? Is sin just being grumpy and uh, a little irritable in the morning when you don't have your coffee? Is that sin? Hey, let's start with this. This is a sub-point. If you're following along, this is a sub-point in answering our first question, what are sins? We have to understand this, that sins are against God. Sins are, are not merely ways that we disrupt one another's lives. They're not really just relational faux pas. It's not just social failures or social inadequacies. What the Bible teaches us is that sin is fundamentally, primarily against God. See, a lot of people are willing to admit that they've sinned. They're willing to admit that they're sinners. Uh, and then they follow with the statement, well, we're all sinners. Or, oh yeah, but we all make mistakes, as if that somehow gets us all off the hook. But sin is not just something that we do to one another. Sin is against God. In the Old Testament, David, he, he knew this. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba and committed murder with Uriah, when he finally was convicted of his own sin, he cried out in Psalm 51, verse 4, to God, he said, against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin is against God. My family's reading a catechism with the children. That's a question-answer uh, way of teaching. And one of the questions goes like this, what is sin? And the answer is sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. Do you see the orientation right there of sin? Sin is against God. Sin is rejecting God. That's active. Or sin is ignoring God. That's passive. 
Sin, fundamentally, is something we do against God. We rebel against his rule and authority. We rebel against his word. Or we just ignore him. We act as if he doesn't exist. We act as if we can just go on our lives without any concern for what he thinks. You think about this. If you steal money and nobody knows, is it still sin? If you cheat and no one else finds out, is it okay? Or is it still sin? Well, your secret sins are not secret to God. Everything we do in our sin is primarily and fundamentally against God. So yes, whatever we do in private or in public, if we are sinning, it is against God. God. So sins, first, you've got to understand they're against God. Secondly, what the Bible teaches us about sin is that sin makes us enemies of God. Listen to this verse. Sometimes this stuff is ignored, but we've got to say it because it's in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 16 says uh, that God says, All who behave unrighteously are an abomination to the Lord your God. That's That's a heavy statement. Everyone who's living unrighteously is an abomination to God. Proverbs 16 uses the word hate to describe God's feelings against sin. In Job chapter 10, verse 14, it's describing God as one who marks sin, who tracks sin. In his omniscience, he sees all sin. He watches and he knows it and he is offended by sin. God's not some old senile grandfather in the sky who's unaware of what's going on down on earth, or if he is aware, he doesn't really care too much. No, God sees sin, hates sin, and he calls it what it is. He says it's an abomination. And so in James chapter 4, verse 4, the writer says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And so here's what we need to understand about sin. Sin is against God, and what sin does, it is our declaration of war against God. It makes us enemies of God. Our own sin is a big deal. We minimize it. We tend to think that sin is only social. It's with people around us. But have you ever considered what God thinks about your sin? Our third thing that we need to think about as we're understanding sin is that sin, the Bible says, will be punished by God. All sin. Every last sin ever committed in the entire universe from the very beginning of time to the very end of time to the end of history, every sin committed in the mind, in the heart, in the hands, in the feet, what you say, every single sin will be punished by God. And the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23 says. Ezekiel 18, 20 says the soul that sins will die. Do you understand the weight of sin before a holy God? God is so good and holy that he can't just let criminals go on sinning without there being payment for sin. But we often minimize sin. And so when we hear a story about someone's sins being forgiven, it doesn't really move us. It will only move us if we really do think about how serious sin is. The Bible says sin, all of it, is going to be punished. J.C. Ryle has kind of a funny illustration. 
where he's describing how we think about sin. And he uses the illustration of animals who stink, but they can't tell that they stink because they don't, that's just what they're used to. He says it like this. The very animals whose smell is offensive to us have no idea that they are offensive. And they're not offensive to each other. And then the analogy, he says, and man, fallen man, I believe can have no just idea what a vile thing sin is in the sight of God whose handiwork is absolutely perfect. Just as the animals don't know how badly they stink, so it is true of humanity. We don't know how bad our sin is. We have no idea how serious it is before a perfectly holy God. We minimize it. We act as if it's no, uh, no big deal. We call it a mistake. We call it a slip-up when in reality it is a cosmic offense against a holy God and God has declared it will be punished. If you, if you want a, a sense of how serious sin is, think of this. Think of this. Uh, think of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Think of one sin that he committed plunged the entire human race into death. That's how serious God takes sin. Think of this. Think of when God wanted to teach Israel about the, the disgusting nature of sin. What did he teach them? He taught them to kill animals and offer bloody sacrifices. Why? To show the horror of sin and its consequences. When, when Jesus warns about sin, he says, your hand, it's better to cut it off than to let it sin. That's how serious sin is. I mean, to, to really think about the, the seriousness of sin, you got to think about what Jesus taught about the consequences of sin. Jesus talks about eternal death, eternal punishment cast out of the presence of God because of unforgiven sin. So sin will be punished by God. We have to see what sin is before we can appreciate the forgiveness of sins. And the last thing sin does, the fourth thing about sin that we're just going over before we move on, is sin creates a sense of guilt in the sinner. Now, this is something I think that anyone listening can identify with. You have been given a conscience. A conscience is a gift of God that you have, and everyone has, and it's something that alarms you from the inside when something's morally wrong. Have you ever done something that you know is wrong, and then you feel a kind of soul pain? We call it shame sometimes. We feel badly about it. We, we, we don't want to think about it. We maybe ignore it. It can haunt us, the sense that we've done something wrong. That's called your conscience, and it's alerting you to the reality. And some of us live all our lives with the haunting shadow of guilt, nagging at us, poking at us, prodding at us. It's our conscience, and that is what happens when we sin before a holy God, and we don't have any way to deal with our sin. You have a guilt that haunts you. Can you identify with that when you have any moments of self-reflection? That is common. That's common to humanity because we're all sinners. So sin is a big 
deal. It's against God. It makes us enemies of God. It will be punished by God. And it really ravages the souls of men and women when they don't deal with it. It makes them have this sense of shame and guilt. And that shame and guilt is meant to drive us to find forgiveness. But instead, many people just live wallowing in their guilt and shame with no solution. So let's ask our second question. What does it mean to forgive sin? What does it mean to forgive sin? Here, uh, it says that Jesus just said, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) Have you ever heard uh, people talk about forgiving themselves? Uh, Self-forgiveness is often uh, talked about these days in in a world that is Um, often about self-expression and following your heart and following your dreams. And sometimes we feel that the biggest crime we commit in our lives is the things we do against our own self-expression. And so what we need more than anything is to forgive ourselves. Think about this. If sin is fundamentally against God, then what does it even mean to forgive yourself? I, I think criminals could probably uh, really love it if all they had to do for their crimes was to forgive themselves and they could get on with their lives. Or if you're, you know this just doesn't work. If you're married and you sin against your spouse and then you go up to them and you say, you know what, I've thought about this and I really have decided that I'm going to forgive myself. (laughs) It doesn't work that way because sin is against someone else. And the offended party is the one who offers forgiveness. We don't forgive ourselves. In other words, we have offended God, and what we need primarily, more than anything else, is for him to forgive us. We are the guilty party. He is the offended party. He is not guilty. He has done nothing against us. He has only been ever loving and patient and kind and generous and gracious. And we have turned away from him, selfishly following our own passions, ignoring the good plans he has for us, ignoring his law. And so he is the one that must offer forgiveness Look, verse 5, Jesus sees these four men, this paralyzed man, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. The scribes are totally scandalized by this. Again, they can't believe it. They're right about one thing. They're right that only God can forgive sins. They're totally right on about that. What they don't understand is that Jesus, by forgiving sins, is right in that moment declaring himself to be equal with God. That's what he's doing in the fact that he's declaring that he has the authority to offer forgiveness. He is saying implicitly, hey, I am the Son of God. I have this authority. To prove that he has that authority, he takes This guy and tells him, rise, get up, get out of your bed, take your bed and go home. And that man is healed right there. He heals the man. He's up and he is healed completely, entirely. Body and soul. The point of the message, as I've said, is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. God must be the one who forgives us. 
And Jesus here as God incarnate is saying that he has authority to forgive sins. You can't forgive yourself. You can't do anything to earn the forgiveness. You can't do anything to wash away your crimes. But here, the verse is saying, and the point of this text, is that God in Christ has authority to forgive sins. This is the best news in the world. This is the greatest news you'll ever hear in all your life, is that God has the authority, the power, the ability, and listen, the willingness to forgive your sin. He heals the paralytic, but he declares, I have authority to forgive sins. Our sin is against God. Our sins has made us enemies of God. Our sin will be punished by God. But there's a solution. And here Jesus says, I have authority to forgive it. You say, well, what, what does that even mean? If, if it's not self-forgiveness, what does it mean to be forgiven? Well, that's the question we're trying to answer here. Here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is an act of God, has to be. Remember, he's the offended party. Forgiveness is an act of God whereby he releases the sinner from judgment. Our sins have deserved judgment, but he says, no, I will not judge you. He frees them from the penalty their sins deserve and then reconciles the broken relationship. In other words, he then not only removes the sin problem, but then welcomes the sinner into a relationship with him. That's forgiveness. Jesus here in the text, you see him in verse 10, calling himself the son of man. That is often understood as a, uh, a name that connotes humility. He's, he's a man and his humanity. The actual opposite is true. Do you know that? In Daniel chapter 7, the son of man is a title that's used to describe the one who comes and sets up an everlasting kingdom. It's a divine title. It's a divine name. Jesus is saying he is the son of God who is operating uh, here in the earth and he's operating with the authority to forgive sins. Remember what chapter one laid out for us. He's the son of God. Uh, he has authority over Satan. He doesn't fall into temptation and sin in the wilderness. He has authority over demons. He's casting them out. He has authority over sickness. He can tell it to leave. The authority over the leprosy. He tells the, the leper to be healed and he's healed. Jesus has authority over all these things. And here, Jesus, the Son of Man, is the one who has authority to forgive sins. Did you know in Matthew 25, Jesus describes himself as the one that all nations will be brought to. That all nations will be brought to Jesus. And Jesus will judge all mankind. Jesus. He makes those statements about himself. Verse 46 of Matthew 25. After all nations are brought to him, he will separate them out. And it says in verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, and these, the righteous, into eternal life. Jesus has authority to determine your eternal destiny. I want to make this clear. This verse is not about friends, great friends, 
who bring people to Jesus. It's not about that. It's great to have great friends, and clearly these four men who brought their paralyzed friend are, are doing something good and bringing their friend to Jesus, but that's not what this text is about. It's not about them being so persistent that they dug through a roof to get to Jesus. I remember being in a winter camp, and the main speaker was talking about this text, and his, his main point, his repeated point, was this, we need to rip the roof off this place. And he said that probably 20 times in the sermon. We're going to rip the roof off this place. And he made the whole point of this text about how we need to rip the roof off this place to get people to hear about Jesus. Now, I'm all about getting people to hear about Jesus. But that's not what this is about. This text is about something greater and more fundamental and more profound than those things. It is about this, the Son of Man. Jesus is the divine Son of Man who has authority to forgive your sin. He's willing to forgive your sin. He's able to forgive your sin. Think about us. How often we're so slow to forgive. Even think about this last week. I wonder if you were slighted in some way, someone hurt your feelings, something, someone did something to you, and it just nagged at you, and you held on to your anger. Your anger was like a thorn in your heart, and you let it puncture you for hours before you released and forgave the person. There are people who will hold on to a grudge for hours, for weeks, for months, there are people who are still separated from those who are in their family, their own loved ones, because of some uh, sin that they were unwilling to forgive. God's not that way. It says he's willing to forgive. He has authority to forgive. He's willing to forgive, and he loves to forgive. So here's our last question. How can you be forgiven? Before I even answer that question, how can you be forgiven, I feel like I need to say something that's obvious uh, to people who've read their Bible and who understand the biblical storyline, something that just in general culture would have understood 100 years ago, much more than they do now. But in our day, people tend to believe that Jesus' fundamental message was judge not. People who love Jesus really don't know all that Jesus taught. They, they just love Jesus, and they think that Jesus' main message was love your neighbor. Don't judge. Be kind. Uh, really, Jesus is not the true Jesus of Scripture. The Jesus they like is some different Jesus that they've made up. And so they believe, many people believe, that just everyone's getting forgiven by Jesus. And so to hear that Jesus forgives sins is like, yeah, duh. I know I'm a sinner. I've sinned against God. And I know, okay, my sin's serious. But, but Jesus is going to forgive me. It's good. He forgives everyone. Uh, these, these kinds of people are, are like the poet Heinrich Hein, who on his deathbed, as kind of his last words, he said, God will forgive me. It's his job. See, so many people, I wonder if this is you, that your idea of Jesus is so different from the Jesus we read in Scripture, the true historical Jesus. 
I wonder if the Jesus you've made up is more of a hippie, that just says love everyone all the time, forgive, endeavor, judge, and there's enough truth in that to be appealing, but it is also enough falsehood to mislead and dupe people into eternal destruction. I mean, listen to some other things Jesus said. Mark chapter 3, verse 29, Jesus said, whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Think about that. Jesus believed. There are categories of people who will never be forgiven. They will never be forgiven because they will never trust him. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus talks about the, the gravity of sin, but then he says, what happens to people who don't do anything about their sin? They're, they go to a place, and here's the words, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Even more startling than that is in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus describes a bunch of people who came to him and they, on judgment day. And on judgment day, all the crowds are around him and they're like, Lord, Lord, we did all these things for you. Aren't you proud of us? We served you. And it says, look at Jesus' response. He says, on that day, many will say to me, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many works in your name? And Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are people, in other words, this is what Jesus believed, that there are people who die unforgiven. Let that sink in. There are people who will die without forgiveness of their sins. Jesus believed that. I don't know what you've been told or what you've taken in. Sadly, this is not often communicated. Jesus did not believe that everyone's going to heaven. He believed that sins were serious and that people will be condemned for their sins. I sometimes feel like I need to apologize on behalf of the evangelical church these days because often churches that are supposed to be preaching the Bible and preaching what Jesus taught are leaving out these fundamental realities because they're so uncomfortable for us to hear. I hope you're not in a church that never talks about sin, never talks about judgment, never talks about hell. But I was reading an article this week. It's a kind of sad article where the writer listened to the sermons from nine of the biggest evangelical churches in America. And he listened to several sermons from their, uh, from their pastors and their preachers in these big churches. The author writing this article is very charitable. He's, he's not trying to just be mean. He's trying to give the thumbs up where he can, but... The findings are really grim. In his analysis, it says it's mainly self-help with Jesus thrown in. There's nothing about sin. There's nothing about a need of repentance. Nothing about judgment. One particularly alarming finding that he mentions in the article 
was this. He says that if you were living in sin and rebellion against God, and you were not interested in Christianity at all, not interested in Jesus, and you happened to walk into that church, and if you were to hear the sermons, you would think, there's nothing for me to fear. God's going to save me anyway. Okay, Jesus is going to make sure all my sins are forgiven. Because there's nothing about God's divine judgment. There's nothing about the wages of sin being death. It's all about doing better, making your life easier, having breakthroughs. One of the sermon series was titled Winning, and winning was all about doing better at your work, doing better at your marriage, doing better at life, succeeding and being productive and accomplishing your dreams. And listen, that is not the gospel. Sadly, these things are being left out. And so we have to say, uh, when we're talking about forgiveness, we, we have to make it clear. Listen, if you're not in Christ, you are right now under the righteous anger of God. Imagine someone actually coming to believe that. Someone actually coming to believe that Jesus was right He wasn't telling a lie. Imagine someone actually reading through what Jesus actually taught about the afterlife, about eternal life in Christ and eternal punishment. Imagine that. Remember as a a young believer, really thinking about the reality of my sin. And I remember thinking about what if it was me It was unforgiven. I have all these sins in my life. What if they're not forgiven? Everything begins to change. Every drive in the car, you worry that there might be a drunk driver that sideswipes you and takes your life and ends it like that. There could be cancer growing in your brain and you would have no idea and your life doesn't have many more years. In days like this, There's a virus that could get you. I remember thinking those kinds of things. The fear began to settle on me. What if I die without forgiveness? And I face a holy God in my sin with no defense. And I have to pay for my sins for all eternity with no chance of ever being removed from my punishment. Could that be you? That you right now, you're so afraid of death because your sins aren't forgiven. I hope you could see the glory in these verses. Because you might be thinking, well, what can I do to be forgiven? What can I do? I'll do anything. Tell me to climb the highest mountain or swim to the deepest sea. Tell me, what do I need to do to be forgiven? And listen, verse 5 tells us. It says, when these guys were coming into Jesus, it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, when he saw that they trusted him, 
believed him, embraced him with a heart of faith, that's when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. You are released from the judgment. You are released from the punishment. You are released from those things. You're free from sin and you're reconciled to me. No more worries about your eternal destruction. Now be rejoicing in your eternal life. Your sins are forgiven. How can you be forgiven? Here it is. Just like these men, you look to Jesus for your salvation and for your healing, and in him you find forgiveness. He forgives you. You say, well, what do I got to do? It's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than just faith. No, it's not just faith and faith. It's not like Disneyland faith. You just got to believe. It's not that kind of stuff. It's faith in the actual person and work of Jesus. Believe him. Entrust your eternal destiny to Jesus Christ. Not your works. Not your works. Not anything you've done. Not anything you can do. It's not that you are uh, really generous. It's not the works of philanthropy. It's not the works of service. It's not the works of ritual. You confessed. You went through confirmation. You were baptized. You pray a lot. It's not the work of comparison. You know, I'm better than most of the people in, in this room and most of the people in my family. It's not the work of making a decision. I raised my hand and I walked an aisle and I prayed some prayer. It's not that. It's not the work of restitution. I lived a bad life, but now I'm going to try my best to live a good life. It's not the work of affliction. Some people think that if I just whip myself and hurt myself and show how serious I am, God will receive me. It's not the work of uh, getting others to affirm you. If just the elders of my church or just my family, if they would think that I'm good enough, then I can be saved. Nothing you do can save yourself. You look to Jesus with eyes of faith. In the moment the hand of faith grabs onto the garment of Christ, he looks and sees your faith and says, forgiven all your sins. This, friends, is why Christianity is explosive. While This is why it changes lives. I was a sinner who had no solution for my sin and guilt haunted me. And Jesus says, I have authority to forgive you. And now, because I believed in Jesus Christ, I know my sins are forgiven. That my punishment is gone. That the wrath of God that I deserved, I do not have to absorb because Jesus absorbed it on the cross. So all my sin, all my laziness, all my lust, all my pride, all my selfishness, all my impatience, all my sinful anger, all my foolishness, all my failure is forgiven. And it can be yours as well. Your sins can be totally forgiven. And you don't need to do any works you need to turn from trusting anything else and trust in Jesus Christ. These people came because they wanted their bodies healed. And Jesus gave them a healed soul. Many people, and maybe even you, are coming to Jesus because you want health. But imagine if Jesus only gave you health for a few more years, you lengthen your life a few more years, and you die in your sins and suffer eternal death apart from God. You wouldn't want that. You come to Jesus, yes, bring him all your problems. He wants to hear all of them. But he can offer you so much more than the healing of your body. He has the authority to forgive your sins. Embrace him. 
by faith and be forgiven. Let's pray. So, Lord, we pray that we would embrace you by faith. And as we do, we would see the reality that you forgive sins and that we, like the crowds, would be amazed and rejoice that you can heal and you can forgive. And Lord, I pray for any of those right now who have not received the forgiveness of their sins, they would do so right now. They would reach out to you with hands of faith, grab hold of you, and that you would forgive all their sins. Thank you that you paid for sinners' sins by going to the cross and dying, that you rose from the dead, proving your victory over sin, and now you're inviting all people to trust in you and have their sins forgiven. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.